And we're back here on Unusual Source at 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial, and also via CFMU.ca, our new online streaming service hitting mobile devices, iPhones, Android, PCs, Apple computers, and all the rest. And we're very pleased to bring you one of the very first interviews in Canada with Canadian independent journalist and activist, Eva Bartlett, who uh, made a surprise visit to North Korea, along with Professor Tim Anderson and some others recently, and I believe we have her on the line overseas. Uh, Eva, are you with us? I am, and I hear you loud and clear. Thanks, Eva. Um, I know there's a bit of a a time difference, but uh, we really want to make sure what you've been saying and what you've been seeing can get out to our audience. Uh, We're absolutely thrilled at the initiative you've taken to help us see behind the borders in uh, the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, also known as North Korea. You've wasted no time in getting there at a critical point. I mean, people have noted on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, you have assembled some quite impressive photo albums. You've uh, changed uh, the banner pic on Facebook. You've been to North Korea very recently, and I guess I wanted to start by asking, you know, what compelled you to to visit North Korea, especially at a time like this? Uh, Well, I had wanted to visit North Korea for many years now um, and just never had the opportunity. I was always involved in something else. But um, you mentioned Professor Tim Anderson. Uh, He contacted a number of us. some of whom weren't able to go in the end. But anyway, he he asked, you know, what about organizing this trip? And so we were communicating with individuals in, in the DPRK, so not through a tour group. Um, and actually, we had wanted to go in the summer, and just as it panned out, um, we ended up going right before the the, the crazy um, U.S. travel ban on, on citizens traveling to the DPRK was enforced on September 1st. So we ended up being there first for one week from the 24th to 31st um, and left, as I said, right before that ban came into place. So it, it is a critical time in that now it's going to be very difficult for people um, who are U.S. citizens to visit the DPRK and to do what we went to do, which is to talk with people, to see for ourselves, um, and to see, you know, how many of these, these myths, how many of these norms that were told by Western media are true. I mean, you can't know everything in one week, of course, but you can certainly get a sense of how much of the rhetoric um, has any weight to it. Yes, the way things have been reported uh, here in Canada, in the U.S., Australia, even one week in North Korea can dispel a lot of myths. And it's it's a lucky accident that you were able to, to be there when you could uh, just before the travel ban was in place and just as tensions have been ratcheting up. And, of course, the media here portrays you know North Koreans as a bunch of faceless automatons and all we see is their military and, and their parades. And, and there's a lot of allegations thrown about. And I understand you went there to try to understand for yourself and for others what was happening. In terms of your photo albums and all the delightful things you've been posting, videos on YouTube and on Patreon, and you have been to the capital city, it looks like, a Pyongyang, and uh, you saw that um, uh, there seems to be a, a diversity of people there. I mean, uh, were they all actors who, who exist to put on a show for Westerners, or do people actually live in that city? <laughs> uh, it's funny you mention that, because um, it's, it's taking time to get all these photos and videos up, particularly 
um, because I, I, I want to do it in a way that it's you know easy for not easy, but I mean it's, um, uh, some videos have too much wind sound, for example. So I want to be careful what I upload, so it's not annoying to viewers. But anyway, I'm 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 gradually adding more and more. And when I started, uh, some of the photos I showed were kind of overviews of the city, and it, it was random. I didn't necessarily do that intentionally, but um, it. Which I did do it with one thing in mind, and that was um, when I went there, I didn't know what to expect. Just like when I went to Gaza in 2008, I actually didn't know what to expect, having read some, but still not having a, a visual concept of what I would see. And I have to say, when I uh, arrived in Pyongyang, I was impressed. I'd seen photos before, but it's, you know, it's not quite the same until you see it in person. I was impressed by the architecture. I was impressed by um, the infrastructure there. And so some of the early photos that I was putting up and videos were showing you know, this, um, the free housing that is provided by the state. And it's not, it's actually quite nice housing and aesthetically pleasing. Um, some of the early footage that I took was, for example, when we came from the airport and it was uh, offhand, I think it was um, maybe after 6 p.m. Anyway, um, the footage I was taking didn't show a lot of people on the streets. And uh, later, in, leaving early the next morning to go south to the DMC, um, also, it didn't show that many people in the street. So some of the initial comments I was getting, in, in addition to people being quite supportive or surprised, uh, were other people who were skeptical, probably because they'd just um, consumed so much rhetoric you know, from Western media. They were skeptical, well, this just looks like a stage, just as you said. This, it looks like there's no people. And so just please be patient, because obviously there are people living here, and we interacted with them, and we went into their homes, and we saw them in parks, etc., um, so yeah, that, that was, uh, some of the initial reaction I got, but, um, you know, we didn't, uh, I think people have, um, when I, I, this is not accidental, what I wanted to say is if somebody goes to the PRK, whether independently as we did or, um, on, on one of the tours, which I don't think is a bad idea at all, um, to see the country for five days a week, whatever, um, I think there's an inherent reaction from some people in, in Western audiences to say, well, what, what you're posting is propaganda. And this is something I've experienced uh, from my work in Syria and Gaza as well. So it's, that's why I, I don't think it's accidental. I think there's constant memes and little um, uh, ideas being put out there that you cannot believe anything that comes from North Korea, even if it's from somebody who goes there. They're just being shown a, a song and dance. We we went to um, we went to a children's hospital, which in itself was quite impressive. Um, it had 300 beds. Um, it's modern. Um, they had they they actually did have some you know impressive equipment, in spite of the fact that the DPRK has been under sanctions uh, for decades, basically since its inception or after the 50s when the U.S. and South Korea practically bombed uh, all of North Korea to inexistence. So, you know, to see a functioning hospital, um, actually, with very interesting little side notes in the hospital, play areas for children, it was uh, a very warm environment. And, you know, they're, they're making the best that they, they're doing the best that they can under these sanctions. Um, and in fact, when we asked them about the sanctions, because we saw this German um, CT machine, we're like, well, how did you get that? And apparently they were able to get this machine before um, a new round of sanctions was enforced or something. But, you know, when you think about it, and this does apply to Syria as well, these sanctions are not, of course, um, against the leaders of the respective countries. They're against the people. Um, and yet when we asked them, the people, we saw this time and again, whether it was in schools or museums or wherever, 
people are quite proud. And so, you know, their response was kind of like, oh, yeah, of course, the sanctions are unjust, but whatever, we're strong, we're, we're defiant, we'll survive, you know. And power to them, because they have survived for decades with the whole world isolating them and then turning the information upside down and, and telling people the opposite of reality of what's happened to their country. For those who are just tuning in, we're speaking with independent journalist and activist Eva Bartlett. Uh, her online presence is in a number of locations. You can look at ingaza.wordpress.com uh, because of Eva's background in Palestine solidarity work. But of course, it aggregates a lot of the things she writes about Palestine, Syria, and I suppose now the DPRK. So um, Eva, of course, uh, this is very exciting that you and a number of individuals were able to bring us this perspective. Um, you mentioned those sanctions. And yes, um, the sanctions affect ordinary people. And this latest round is preventing things like useful medical equipment from getting in, which, of course, is the intent of those sanctions. And they have to try to keep business as usual, some kind of ordinary life in the capital. And um, certainly um, traveling around the streets, using the infrastructure is a good way to get a sense of a place. Pyongyang, I mean, there's a, a lot of orderly streets, and um, now there's colorful buildings. Um, for people that are trying to just get around and make their, their way, I understand there's a fairly sophisticated or uh, interesting subway system. You were able to witness, and I also think photograph and videotape that system, right? Yeah, I, I actually, um, as I mentioned earlier, the, our visit uh, to uh, DPRK was coordinated by um, people we had been talking with there, so it wasn't a tour group. But anyway, um, I had done a some meetings prior to going, and one of the things I did on the visit was the subway system because the photos I saw were just beautiful. Um, and also, to, I mean, riding in public transport, um, transit anywhere, is a great chance to get to just see normal people. And happily enough, uh, we were able to go. We, we saw just two stations because it was a, a very packed itinerary. But um, uh, it's quite deep, uh, possibly, I don't know, serving as a bomb shelter because the reality is that the U.S. could bomb um, North Korea again. Uh, but aside from that, it's, um, it was beautiful inside. Like, none of the, none of the typical <laughs> subways that I've seen in Western nations, smelling of urine and dirty and advertising everywhere, it was, um, there were mosaics and, and paintings and engravings um, in two stations that I saw, and apparently I've seen, this is in the other, um, I think it's 16 stations. Um, and they depicted scenes of rebuilding um, after having been, you know, um, annihilated uh, in the 50s. So you have scenes of farming, of, of factories, et cetera. But also, um, you, it was a good chance, like I said, to see normal people. So students, um, just normal people in normal clothing, uh, waiting for the subway, interacting. Um, and so that, that was very interesting. Um, also, we, um, I just want to get back to... Some of the other things I wanted to talk about, the, that we went to a science tech center, which was incredibly modern architecture. Um, it had over 3,000 computers running on solar energy, had books in um, 12 foreign languages, new books on science and technology. They also have an e-library, and they're, they're doing um, distance learning uh, for people living in other provinces, whether they're working or living in the countryside, so they can study um, through the internet system they have there. Um, and then it was it was uh, like a normal kind of science museum teaching young people about concepts of physics and science and nature. Um, but it's I, I was really impressed by um, well I mean everything all these public venues are very inexpensive um, to for people to go to. So you did see 
as I said, students and also people in their working um, outfits and other people just dress regularly. Um, and the, the center is partially um, geothermal, partially solar. Um, they had a green roof. So it was uh, surprisingly modern. And, you know, I, and I say that um, sounding like, well, I, you know, as I said, I was ignorant on what I would expect to see. But I, I don't think most people, when they think of North Korea, I don't think they think of um, green energy and bike lanes and clean streets. I think they think of scenes that have been planted in the mind by subtle, um, you know, imagery in corporate media or movies. Yes, that's that's very true. There's, there's seeds planted in our minds. So when Westerners go over to these tours or see Pyongyang, uh, the question in their mind is, you know, are these people real or it's just, are they actors? Are they putting on a show for me? Uh, what do these people think of their government? Are they all just these, you know, mindless automatons? Are they brainwashed? But I mean, if you go to North Korea and you, and you look at things and you're, all you're thinking about is this a, a production just for me, aren't, aren't you the brainwashed individual? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And um, it, it is an arrogance, I have to say. It's an arrogance to assume that because um, a, a way of life or system is not like the system that we live in, and to think that our system is better, but to think, to think that this different system is somehow inferior, um, it is ex- exceptionally arrogant. And you know, if you go there and you talk to people and they tell you, this is what I feel about our, our, our system or our leader, then it's, you know, why judge? I know people think they've been brainwashed. We've all been brainwashed to some degree, and um, I mean, I, I couldn't even force myself to watch the U.S. elections uh, because there's a prime example of people who are brainwashed by ideology who actually have no idea about substance or real issues in general. Um, but I mean, I have to admit, like, it is—it's um, not common, for example, in, in Canada to have um, people kind of rallied around or unified around a certain one or two strong ideas because, um, well, our system is pretty screwed up in Canada. But also, you have to take into context the history of DPRK and why people might support and even revere their former president and their current leader. Um, I, I'm not speaking, and I didn't even begin to speak for what all North Koreans or any North Korean um, thinks or feels, but that there is a lot of respect for the former leaders, the former president Kim Il-sung. Um, because he is seen as a liberator from Japanese um, colonial legacy and, and fighting against imperialism and rebuilding the country after the U.S. destroyed it. And I was told when I was there that um, one U.S. quote, I don't know who was it said that, but they, the idea was that North Korea wouldn't be able to rebuild within 100 years. And, you know, after a few decades, they, they had functioning, or maybe prior to that, they had a functioning city. Yes, um, for a long time, they were neck and neck with South Korea despite being cut off from so much of the world. And of course, when the Soviet Union dismantled itself there, I mean, obviously they were cut off from major economic, um, military, and other opportunities. Uh, The 90s were a very difficult time. Uh, What you're telling us about Pyongyang suggests that the 1990s are over, although they've had to make sacrifices to afford their nuclear program and such, uh, that the, the city has quite a number of interesting sites and a functioning infrastructure and so on. There's obviously numerous things you witness there, but I wonder about the rest of the country or things outside Pyongyang. Did you have a chance to get anywhere else, rural or small cities or anything like that, to see how, how the country might be functioning outside the capital? Yeah, I, I had two occasions. Uh, one was the first full day um, of being there, where we went um, 
over, I think, looking at a map and eyeballing the distance, it was over 130 kilometers south of Pyongyang to um, the demilitarized zone. And, of course, that in itself is a history lesson because you hear the North Korean side of the story, which in general we don't hear unless you're actively looking on, on DPRK websites or scholars or whatever. But their side of the story of what happened in years leading up to the 50s when the Korean War was. Because the Western, of course, version would be that the North invaded without pretext to cause or whatever, and then the U.S. is defending virtues and democracy and all that. So um, going to um, Panmunjom, the DMZ area, was very interesting. But the route itself was very interesting. Uh, something I noticed from the plane and, of course, driving is how lush the country is. Um, I did live in South Korea for a couple of years uh, in the early 2000s teaching English, and I know you know agriculture is a good thing there. It's interesting, and again, um, I, I don't know everything that I don't know everything about North Korea at all. But um, I know one of the claims is that the country cannot feed itself, and there might be elements of truth to that in the 90s, um, and even even still now. But again, bearing in mind the sanctions and the effects of the U.S. bombing of the country, um, we did see a lot of agriculture, also um, solar panels on homes. I was told that every um, pretty much every home uh, in the country has solar panels. Um, some initiatives in the last six or seven years, then hmm. um, well-maintained roads. Um, and, I mean, unfortunately, due to time, I, I'd love to go back and spend more time romping around the countryside and visiting villages. Uh, but you could see from the main road going south, you could see well-maintained infrastructure leading up to villages. Wow. The other in, uh, instance was going to a collective farm outside of Pyongyang, and that was really interesting. Um uh, apparently, before the the housing was built for that farm, it was just a normal farming area. So, probably you would have had simple dwellings. But uh, what we saw was um, tens of, and I, I wish offhand I could remember the number of houses, but tens of houses, um, maybe maybe a hundred, maybe more, maybe less, maybe so. Uh, but anyway, houses that were really well designed. Um, each house had its own plot of land around the house solar panels on top. Uh, we saw inside one house, it was quite nice, bullet, etc. Um, they used nothing, gas for cooking. And, um, you know, people that using, what they do is they work collectively on farms, but what they grow on their own plot of land, they keep. And it looked like a really um, very nice system. Um, and they had a also a cultural center and a daycare center in that farming area. So that was interesting. And to talk with a woman that lived in the house that we visited, um, seemed pretty content with her life. And I know, again, people, and I don't blame people for saying, well, that's one house, one community. But I think it is an insight into, um, you know, what we're told is that the North Korean dictatorship, as they will say, um, is starving its people and, you know, hogging everything for itself, uh, plundering from the people that I had somebody tell me recently. Um, but what, what we were seeing, um, granted in only certain areas, was that, no, there's actually really functioning systems where people work certain numbers of hours a day and they have their own homes. And, I mean, that applies actually we visited, which is a silk factory. We got a history lesson on how, um, over the decades, the different leaders tried to improve and did improve the working conditions. It was very clean, um, um, airy, uh, very hygienic and safe factory with cafeteria, with residents, with a woman who are not married. I mean, a lot of interesting things and a huge emphasis on children. Um, again, I'm referring back to Pyongyang. I know you asked about the countryside, but in, in Pyongyang, uh, we visited many areas that were directed at 
providing good education and extracurricular education and cultural programs for children. Having lived in the South, I'm, I'm very aware these things exist, but they're not for free. <laughs> no, I mean, you've mentioned on a number of occasions, and I can even think of more in which things are made affordable and accessible to the average Korean, as far as we can tell. It's just, it's interesting that what you're, you're saying about, uh, number one, the rural areas, the countryside, and the people. And I want to get into that. The, the countryside, uh, it reminds me of Cuba, your description. Um, uh, certainly the photos you have posted are, are very interesting, very green, very lush at times, uh, reminiscent in some ways of what I've seen in Cuba. Uh, surprisingly green place. You know, even though North Korea is not really um, optimal land for agriculture, for farming. They've done their best. They've used all their resources to, to compensate for that. So that's interesting in itself. And what you, what you did going to a, a rural area, talking to a clinic or little, little buildings, little uh, homesteads, I've done the same in Cuba. It's, uh, it's interesting. And, and of course, there are, there are obvious uh, commonalities between the two countries there. In terms of its people, um, wow. I mean, we talk about the buildings and the, you know, the exhibits and, and, and Pyongyang and the transit and the trains and all that. But, you know, obviously the country is not designed for postcards to be sent home. It's for the people there. Uh, and in that regard, uh, you've had the opportunity to talk to some people and that can really tell us a lot. What are they like there? In Pyongyang uh, or in the rural areas, are they are they scared? Are they shaking? Are they you know furtive, mouse-like? What or, or or what? Like how do they how do they com- conduct themselves? No, I I didn't. I mean, and that's, those are good points because that's what we're told the people will be like, kind of looking around um, for state security to see if they're answering questions question question correctly. No, that's that's not the sense that I got. I got the sense that people were. Uh, like normal people, except perhaps they're uh, more educated on certain levels. Like, of course, they're very aware of their own history. Um, but, for example, when we visited a high school, the students, I was incredibly impressed by them. I found them not only very intelligent, but when you ask questions about their, their dreams, uh, what they hope for the future, and this one class that we dropped in on was a science uh, year class. And so... They were talking, one kid was talking about how he really wanted to participate in international science competitions and exhibitions, and he really wished to do that with his American counterparts. And the other kids were talking similar things, wanting to become um, scientists, doctors, teachers, whatever. But they were speaking in English to us. They had excellent English. Um, And uh, one of them said, you know, we we asked about the sanctions, and as I said earlier, a lot of the people when we'd ask about sanctions we're so proud to be like, yes, we're under sanctions, but we've been just fine. We've been able to manage in spite of that. But we prodded a little bit because obviously the sanctions are unjust. They're, they're criminal. And the one boy um, thought about it. He said, yeah, why hasn't anybody put the U.S. on sanctions given <laughs> that they've invaded and destroyed so many countries? Yeah. It's interesting how things get flipped around when you're in North Korea or some country that's outside the empire, um, because here the question is, why doesn't North Korea do this, or why don't they obey the United States, or why are they doing this? But if you talk to people in North Korea, they might say things to you like, yeah, uh, why doesn't anyone sanction the United States? Or, you know, is it true that in the United States, if, if you don't uh, have money, they'll throw you out in the street and, and you know, you become homeless and, and so on, which uh, was uh, somewhat mystifying to some people. Uh, when they've talked mm-hmm. to visitors. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it, it, they, they are looking, um, looking in from the outside. 
in terms of the U.S.-led uh, world and, and obviously must experience frustration. I mean, you've talked about people being proud and that they understand they have difficulties, but they plow on and, and they soldier on. And I guess there seems to be from, from you and from others who have been there uh, the idea that although they haven't been accepted by the empire, that that hasn't phased them too much, and that they're gonna they're gonna live their lives uh, regardless of these sanctions from outside. Yeah, the, one of the um, places um, that was, as I said, geared towards children that we visited was the Children's Palace, and I I believe it was there. There was some sort of slogan written in Korean writing, but it was translated to something about "We do not envy others." In other words, like, no, we don't want to be like the United States. And it's interesting, somebody asked me um, on, on social media, you know, do they have television? They just wanted to know, like, are they like us? And so, well, yeah, they, I did see big black screen TVs in some people's homes and also in the public square, big TV blasting at times opera, at times cartoons for children. But then later on it occurred to me, well, I guess your question is, do they get to watch the same garbage programming that we get to watch? And no, they don't. And I think that's actually, you know, segueing into some of the children we met. Um, granted, these are probably some of the more talented children um, at the Children's Palace or at um, some of the um, kindergarten or orphanage or um, elementary school we visited. We did see a number of exceptionally talented for their age children. And that's not uncommon. I mean, I don't want to say only in the East, any culture um, takes its children as promise when they develop them. But it was interesting how many venues were open to these children and also that, you know, these kids aren't being raised watching TV or um, playing the, the video games or whatever. That, well, I mean, they have access to games, of course, but they're, they're developing in different ways. And it's not a bad thing. It's just it's different than our system. And unfortunately... To get back to that arrogance and racism, um, you know, it's not a bad thing that they don't have the, the sitcoms and the reality TV um, programming that we have. They're actually able to learn to think independently in different ways, whereas we think they're living under a dictatorship and they don't think independently. Well, I think we need to rethink how independent we're thinking, you know, <laughs> how much of our own thinking and actions is actually independent. It's a good point, you know, and, and of course, for those just tuning in, we're speaking with Eva Bartlett, a journalist, and activist. Uh, you can find her writings at ingaza.wordpress.com and 21st Century Wire, and you'll find them on Patreon and, and a lot of other places. We'll get to that, but I, I, just on what you're saying about the, the children, education, people, and the culture... Uh, certainly, it seems from what I've seen in your photographs and video that a lot of North Koreans have real jobs as farmers or uh, industrial workers or in cultural uh, production um, and, and training and so on, from theater to uh, you know musical arts and so on. And uh, I'm sure they're probably working either hard days or long hours, since, of course, many, many luxuries we take for granted are limited there. So what do they do for fun? I mean, you know, I, I know there's a bunch of stuff in, in Pyongyang and in the countryside. What did you see them doing in order to enjoy themselves? Uh, well, the first day after we went down to the, uh, the DMZ, when we came back to Pyongyang, um, we visited uh, one of their amusement parks. And as it turns out, they have a number of them. And I was, again, wasn't expecting to see that. And um, the things that struck me, aside from the fact that the rides are actually quite good, <laughs> quite state-of-the-art, right? you know, again, given the sanctions, um, and I rode maybe two or four of the rides, and, and you know, they, they serve the purpose of an amusement park, which is the truly, 
Uh, but the, the lines for the rides were so long. Like, the, the, the kids um, were basically, the, the park is so inexpensive that people, it, it was very full. And we were able to talk with some kids and, like, just random kids. I said, I don't want to talk with kids. One woman I spoke with happened to be a teacher who said that she brought her, her school kids here um, very frequently. And some of the kids I spoke with, a group of 14-year-olds, they were just like normal kids, just saying, "Yeah, we like this is fun." You know, we've come here before, and they 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 were just that's the thing in in the park or at the zoo that we visited. Um, we saw a lot of younger kids running around being inquisitive, um, older kids with their notebooks, just as I'm sure you and myself did um, when we were children, going to going to class trips and having to do little um, study programs. Um, they they just seemed normal, except. Again, having lived in South Korea, I can relate that the, the society there does grow up learning to respect their elders, et cetera. So they're more respectful, perhaps, than um, normal kids elsewhere. But, I mean, they they were like a South Korean kid that I would have met, except perhaps without all their um, commercialism. Um, uh, we went to we went to a circus, uh, which is fairly impressive. Um, I, I would have taken more footage. Um, and haven't put up the, the photos that I've taken, but... Um, as with uh, some venues in the West, um, we weren't allowed to film inside the circus, unfortunately. But they, they were doing um, impressive things. And um, just randomly one day um, during lunchtime from my hotel room, I was looking down at the river and I saw uh, next to the hotel a group of men playing volleyball. And this was kind of around the corner. So they weren't singing or dancing for anybody. They were just men playing volleyball. So I started filming them and I just thought, oh, this is fun. You know, they're, they're, they're playing volleyball and they're doing similar kind of fist pump um, victory bump kind of things that you would see anywhere. So, um, I mean, uh, and all these, as I've said, the amusement park or the zoo or the circus, are, um, I, I ask the price, and they're very affordable, just like the public transit is very affordable there. Yeah, no, I loved what you had posted there about the amusement park and the, the roller coasters and all that, because, of course, we think we live in such a great country where you get these advertisements, which they don't have there, about, Go, go to Canada's Wonderland, go to this, go to that, and you pay, you know, $70 to get in, and then you go to the water, the water slide or the roller coaster, and you got to wait for, like, two or four hours and then, you know, pay, like, $12 to ride it once and try to get in there before the park closes, you know? And uh, maybe, you know, they, they don't seem to have that problem. Um, and, um, you know, there are a lot of amusing asides in your, in your album, like the shoes. It seems they're very particular about their... Uh, shoes in, in North Korea. It seems a way to uh, express uh, themselves. And um, people can learn more about that in your posts. Um, and I understand that uh, you've been putting up a Patreon account. Um, and in, in this account, you've linked to videos of this DPRK trip, as well as photos and explain some of these things. How do people get onto this? Uh, they might want to subscribe and, you know, set up more content. So if I want to go to your Patreon and see the North Korea items and the Syria and Palestine, where do they go on the Internet to get that? Yeah, um, it's patreon.com slash Eva K. Bartlett. And um, what I actually hope to do with this or what I plan to do is um, start doing more of what you're doing, interviewing some of the many interesting people I've met over the years. Um, and I'm actually really excited that one of the first uh, people, actually two people, I will be interviewing is um, the two Australian filmmakers that made that 20-minute documentary, The Haircut, about North Korea. Oh. Um, I think... Their documentary is very insightful. I know we didn't have time today, maybe in our next uh, interview or discussion, we can talk about them, but 
I really like the way they approached um, educating people or giving people another view um, of North Korea. Yes, I really want to talk about that because you have your own experience just to compare that with and your own experience of how the media then treats you. So uh, absolutely fabulous uh, area of discussion. So I, I know you got lots to do. So thanks for giving us your time on this. And we want to check up because I know you're going to have more photos and articles and such on your trip to the DPRK. So thanks for doing that. And, and we're going to get this out there and make sure we can catch up with you um, on this fabulous content you're bringing us. That's great. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, I will be getting some articles out. I've been prioritizing sharing the photos and videos, but definitely um, some written content. I'll, I'll be publishing that pretty soon. So thanks a lot for having me on to talk about this.